Hi, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today, our guest is Michaela Emch, a multi-talented communication and marketing specialist, translator, safari guide, keen naturalist, and biology enthusiast. In 2021, Michaela wrote the book, From Nature's Mouth, the handbook for bio-infused human communication. Let's begin. Michaela, welcome to Making Sense of Complexity. How are you doing today? Hi, George. I'm doing very well. Thanks very much. Um, I'm very excited about this. And I, I, I wanted to start, I asked my guests a question about kind of where they are and what the weather is like. So tell me where you're calling in from. So I'm in the Swiss Alps, uh, just at the point where Switzerland, Italy and France meet. So through one window I can see Italy, the other window I can see France, sitting in the French-speaking part of Switzerland and uh, in the mountains. And today is a bit rainy, but that's wonderful because I got my new garden planted in a biodiverse way. And so all the new plantations need to get their roots going. So that's wonderful for them. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm looking forward to seeing everything flower in a few days when the sun's going to be back. Well, that's great. And uh, so now, uh, give me an idea of how you got interested in complexity. Well, I think complexity is a connects topic to a lot of things that always interested me. I think my first touch at complexity in a conscious way was at university, which is way too many years ago, uh, in a class about epistemology. And um, that's when I got you know, familiar with the, 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 this whole uh, succession of scientific approaches. And that's the first time that somehow this whole question of threads of thoughts being linked together really appeared to me. Um, then again, I'm being a marketing and communication specialist um, in that sense, always working with humans and with fluxes between humans. Uh, systems of communication and of interaction have always been uh, obviously complex, uh, sometimes complicated, but very often complex and complicated. And when I took up um, my safari guiding career, um, the whole epi-systemic uh, um, approach of looking at nature where everything is related kind of echoed the whole complexity of ecosystems, be they human, uh, technological, or natural. Mm. So complexity mm. is everywhere. It's just most people don't realize that they're every day applying complexity. Right. So you, you found it in the human world of communication and um, uh, following up on that. And then your, your, it sounds like your interest in and passion for nature got you exposed to the, a different way of thinking about it and and now you're trying to bridge between those two and put those put those together yeah the whole idea is to connect things that are not usually connected uh, I have a big passion for trying to reach extremes we were playing in thought with uh, Daniel which you interviewed before Daniel Friedman about you know linking poetry and computers and randomness and ants of course and all kinds of religion and music. Uh, mm -hmm. 
which are all uh, happening to be complex systems and, and ways of making sense of, of the world around us. And yeah, I'm sure that if we try to bridge things that have not really been bridged, we will find new connections uh, of interest. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about your book. It's um, uh, From Nature's Mouth, the Handbook for Bio-Infused uh, Human Communication. Um, and uh, it's something that uh, you self-published, I, I gather. I know I have a copy of it, and um, I can't hold it up, though, because it's a digital version. So <laughs> I can uh, hold it up. Yeah. There we go. All right. There we I go. I have a paper version. Yeah, a terrific. A few of them. <laughs> terrific. So um, uh, that looks, that seems like an effort where you're trying to bring together your, uh, your interest in communication and uh, what you've been observing in the natural world and bring it together and offer it. So tell us a little bit about the, uh, uh, about the book and the process of putting it together. So what, what happened at the beginning of COVID uh, was lots of time and a bit stuck at home. So I was looking for online courses that I could pursue. I was uh, looking for the institution where I did my um, safari guide training and they had an introductory course to uh, biomimicry of which I've never, never heard before, which sounds crazy now that you look back on it. And uh, I took this uh, course on biomimicry. There were three other courses, I took them all. Uh, over weekend, some people binge watch series and I binge watched biomimicry and got really deep into it, bought all the books I could find. And after a few weeks, I kind of noticed there had not been many things about human interaction and biomimicry um, that had been published. And so, well, I decided to do it since I'm a communication specialist and a new biomimicry practitioner in the formal sense, uh, why not link both? And I came up with uh, answers to challenges uh, to human communication in 21st century as an applied method uh, for biomimicry. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took me a bit of time and here it is. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, I loved reading it, and uh, you picked a particular story for the, the front part of it. You opened the book with the uh, story of the hummingbird, and I wonder if you just uh, give, us a, give us the highlights and tell us what that story means to you and why you picked it. So the story of the hummingbird is there is a big forest fire uh, where hummingbirds live, so I guess South America, uh, let's say. A uh, big forest fire, all the animals run around crazy, taking shelter, uh, pulling their hairs out for the mammals and their feathers out for the birds, not knowing what to do. And there is a, one small little hummingbird that goes to the river, picks up a little bit of water like a canadair and drops it on the fire. And an angry armadillo uh, turns to this hummingbird and says, well, you fool. How do you think this is going to help? The fire is huge. You have a small beak. This will never help. And the hummingbird turns around and says, well, at least I'm doing my part. And this is an analogy for how I feel about, you know, all the broken systems uh, in humanity and all the links that have been broken between humans and nature within humans and between communities. And maybe this book can mend just a little bit or inspire people to pick up their own 
uh, responsibility and try to extinguish this fire altogether. Yeah, and I think what's interesting to me about that story that links in with um, complexity is that the act of that single hummingbird seems to be, um, I mean, it's isolated and all by itself, it's not having any impact. Um, but in complex systems, it's, it's the individual actions within a system of many, many, many individuals that ends up creating some really fantastic uh, results. And Effects, uh, yeah. yeah, the analogy, Daniel talked a lot about ants and you know, a single ant uh, left to itself will simply die. It has no efficacy in the world, but you put a million of them together and all of a sudden you have something really, really phenomenal. Yeah, and I, I think also uh, it talks to inspiration. Um, I think we have been, you know, trained in the last 30 years to see whatever is negative. If you, we singled out the positive actors and the positive initiatives of people uh, or entities, I mean, it can be companies. Uh, I'm not a, uh, stuck on, on what you call them, but there's lots of people that try to do good and uh, we should highlight them uh, to inspire. Yeah, so that's a communication challenge for our age. Um, we, we tend to think of ourselves and our actions somewhat in isolation, we're self-oriented, and yet it's really in combination with everybody else that things, uh, things can make a difference. Absolutely. And part of what you're trying to do is communicate that. I mean, that's a major communication challenge because it's so easy to hear negative stories and media passes on negative stories. We hear those negative stories all the time and it's easy to be discouraged because we don't hear uh, all of those individual acts, positive acts that would uh, help to give us the feeling that we're participating in, in trying to craft a solution with everybody else. Yeah, there's two communication challenges at least. One is highlighting uh, positive actions uh, to inspire, to exemplify, but also to get these different initiatives to connect. Uh, it's like weaving a net of the future that exists in the present. Uh, people who are forward thinking or who have this passion for community and um, hope, I think there's lots of uh, simmering uh, initiatives that are under the radar, but if we connect all these people, all of a sudden it's a party. I mean, <laughs> you, you're not alone anymore and you can exchange resources, knowledge and uh, funds, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that can only help uh, into the global scheme of things to, mm -hmm. to renew our, our community. Right, so that ties into another um, major topic in complexity science and that that's the issue of networks and uh, building networks and the uh, resilience of networks and in the sense of human communication that's really how how we communicate with each other is one you know one to one one to many there's this process that takes place and then it gets repeated and repeated and repeated throughout the network and eventually it reaches uh, you hope uh, all of the human beings on the planet right yeah. Hey, let's yeah. be ambitious. Let's try yeah. to reach yeah. a maximum of people. Yeah. Well, it's true that every human being is connected. 
to right. every other human being. It just it may take a little while for things to filter through, and there and there are issues of how that how good that communication is by the time it gets to the end of the uh, end of the chain. But that op that opportunity is there to communicate because we're all connected. Yeah, yeah the connectedness, you know, that that's that's also very interesting in complexity, um, especially in computer science. We have lately very very much been focusing on the nodes uh, that, that connect different other nodes. Uh, I'm not a specialist. Uh, but maybe what is more interesting is the flux of information rather than the, the repository. Mm -hmm. um, it's, li it's like if you look at the human body, uh, it's the circulation of blood that makes it happen. If blood stagnates somewhere, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So you need to get, you know, money maybe as well should be flowing and not be uh, stocked in, in, in different organs, uh, which, which is a sign of a sick organism. Yeah, so that's, that sounds like we're now talking about something that is both sociological, the flow of information, or economic, the flow of money, um, and in a living organism, the flow of, the flow of blood, uh, as an Nutrients, example. water. Yeah. Yeah, as an example of some of the things that, that it's, it seems to be the same concept of flow, but now it applies to very, very different networks at very, very different levels. Um, so uh, Maybe not. Maybe not? I don't know. Uh, maybe we, we should you know, emulate uh, through biomimicry the, the way that if we consider ourselves as a superorganism made up of cells or you know, our body, gut biome, uh, skin biome, and, and so on, and then maybe if you nest this, uh, our communities, our societies, our companies, our groups uh, are all super organisms at different scales, and we could maybe learn something from nature on how it functions as a super organism instead of thinking of the individual all the time. Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's from the science of net from network science as applied to biology and human institutions and economics it really seems clear that there are parallels across all those different levels and each level is different so as you point out each of the cells in our human body is a complex system and those right. cells are working together in in some way that it seems almost magical how how these uh, hundred billion cells could possibly work together because you know they don't have an they don't necessarily have somebody telling them what to do like you do in a hierarchical organization they're just working together that creates the human with with this immense capacity for cognition and language and then th so that human is also a complex organism. And that human is participating with so many other humans. So, yeah, it makes sense to think of that as a complex organism. And then those institutions that we participate in all have relations with each other. They're operating at some level and they're inter interacting with nature. And if you keep going pretty soon, you're okay. Now we're talking Gaia, right? <laughs> right. It's all warm. at least Gaia if at you don't go Gaia. to the universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, that's part of a way of imagining this linkage that we all have across those different, those different networks, and I really like that. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the importance of biodiversity. That's a topic that comes up um, in your book, and 
Um, so tell us what biodiversity is, why it's important, and how you, how you see it. Well, bio or any diversity actually is, is the possibility that, well, you, you're familiar with food chains that we learned in school. Now we're talking about food networks, which are mm -hmm. way better representations of the way uh, ecosystems function or mm -hmm. biomes function. Mm -hmm. So the less participants, diverse participants you have in a network, the more the network is at danger mm -hmm. because it becomes fragile, because there's no redundancy and there's no feedback loops, multiple feedback loops and resilience uh, in case one of the participants in the, in the network fails. Well, we see that with the power grid, for example. Mm -hmm. If you have a very centralized mm -hmm. power grid and one of your uh, uh, nodes uh, fails, then you have all of Texas having no more, uh, no more power during a, a snowstorm, for example. Mm -hmm. um, if you have redundancy and distribution and diversity, uh, the whole system is way more resilient and thus much more prone to surviving a mm -hmm. crisis from the outside. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's very important bi biodiversity, of course, and uh, being in Switzerland, we're one of the worst uh, countries for biodiversity. We, we lose the most species a year, I think, something like that, because of urbanization and you know concentration of population. And also we have very little parts of our territory that are protected, uh, which I deplore. Uh, Mm. But you can see that if your garden, if, if you plant, uh, do you know that the second largest crop in the world is lawn grass? Uh, I think. I believe it. Yeah, I, and, I believe and it. it is, and it is sterile. Mm -hmm. And I it mean, takes a lot of water. It takes a lot, a lot of water, water. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and it brings no nutrients. It, it depraves the soil. It's very bad for biodiversity. Mm -hmm. If we could like reverse the idea of that, and you know, plant local plants mm -hmm. and um, favor biodiversity, which I'm doing uh, practically in my garden right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you also save species that are uh, perfectly adapted to the place where you live, and thus um, strengthen again the biodiversity nets mm -hmm. and create, well, recreate or restore to the maximum of your ability um, a network of resilience in nature that can come back uh, mm -hmm. from from outside aggression. Yeah, and uh, I want to get back to that. You started with the discussion of the food web, and uh, I think I just want to explore that a little bit because uh, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. In the food web, you know, everybody eats something, right? And, and, and it's a circle. Because, yeah. uh, because, you know, it is, in a sense, a closed system. The biosphere is a closed system. Um, our life on Earth is a closed system. Yeah, there are some things that eat, eat rocks, and that's helpful. It can, you know, expand the cycle. Uh, everything's relying on water. So if you have a system that is where one animal, for example, only eats one, one other animal who only eats one other animal and this goes around in a circle, then you have a, essentially a, a, a circle that is very, very uh, intolerant, okay. intoler yeah. fragile, intolerant to changes. So building uh, or having a system that has multiple pathways, if, 
if uh, if one of the food sources declines, um, there are other options, and so the the whole system can then respond to changes from the outside in a way that's resilient and 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 continues to create that high level of biological function. So there's so it's it's a good thing, right? Well, diversity is always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. If you look at human endeavors, uh, if you have diverse perspectives, if you have a diverse team, if you have diverse disciplines, diverse backgrounds, di diverse demographics, mm -hmm. uh, and so on, you will start looking at things with a multitude of possibilities. Mm -hmm. If you only have white, male, straight, East Coast US educated people that went to the three same schools with the same teachers, the solution the way, they will they Michaela, will come up that's, with that's might. Me. You just you just named me, right? I was looking at you. White You're male, my inspiration. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, yeah, and I I'm not saying uh, you're bad. Yeah. I'm saying you're part of a diversity as well. Yeah. I had a great interview with Sam Barton. Um, and uh, one of the points that he made is that complexity has ethical implications. Mm -hmm. And I think you've pointed to diversity as an example of something. It has very practical significance in an ecological sense or in the sense of human institutions or communication. Very, very practical implications. But those implications point to diversity as having an ethical value. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Anything you do has an ethical value, if you look at it. It's just like anything you do has a political weight as well. Uh, writing this book, I didn't think I was a political animal, even though I studied political science. And, but I didn't think it was a political act. But of course, as you, you write about perils between nature and human organization, and you end up with diversity being the best solution, it becomes a militant book for diversity, mm. for the strength of the system, for sane competition that then turns into cooperation. Um, so whatever you do is ethical, whatever you do is political, whatever you do is economical as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. again, the, the links between the different spheres that we have been taught to think of in different you know, patches, mm -hmm. uh, everything is linked. If, if you follow your ethics, of course, you become political and economical and, and militant as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's an interesting, I mean, I've, I've been asking people about the threads from different branches of science. You know, complexity science is something that isn't, you can't put it in a box because everything is connected to everything else. So you're, you're talking about, uh, about physics of dynamic systems, but that interplays with the biological system, it interplays with the human system, and it also in, uh, interplays with network theory, information theory, you know these some things that you'd think of as strictly sort of mathematical, but it all it all has connections across those many dimensions. And you're pointing out here that uh, yeah, it's but it's not just the technical science that is cross-cutting, but it has implications for ethics. It has implications yes. for 
long-term survival. It has implications for Oops, how we build institutions. Um, Are you back? Oh, you froze for a few seconds. Sorry, yeah, uh, yeah, I lost yeah, you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just we just keep going through these things. I think the system is is uh, is collecting all that data, so we'll be able to put it together at the end. Um, so the systems. Uh, uh, so the ethics of uh, that flows out of these findings, complexity science. You know, bio, biodynamic, bio, biodiversity being a, a positive value for the functioning of the system, applied across to human institutions. Um, and now, when we get into the social sphere, as you point out, that potentially becomes uh, a political issue, something to be uh, potentially uh, suggesting we need to change or transform the way institutions are structured if we're going to have institutions that contribute to thriving the way a diverse biological net network contributes to thriving. Absolutely. Well, what is very interesting is, you know, if, if, if you connect ethics and politics or ethics and economics, you end up with the next goal for me, and, and that, that would be actually the, 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 the pursuit of, of what I did with this first book, is to, to write a book about bio-infused governance. Mm -hmm. how, how do societies in nature, it, be it the cells, the mm -hmm. societies kind of, uh, cells, neurons, and ants, and meerkats, and wolves, and whatever, uh, distribute power and and make sure that their species survives uh, within a thriving ecosystem. And it, it, it's quite interesting to see that, again, biodiversity, different solutions for different nested components are the answer. Uh, ants function in a very decentralized, very uh, flat, uh, very simple uh, way self-governing, emergent, and then you have fairly um, elaborate uh, social constructs uh, such as, uh, you know, the elephant societies or um, uh, some apes. Uh, they already have like hierarchies and roles and, and, you know, defined dominances and so on and so forth. Um, I think that that is a very interesting field to find social innovation in nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's going to be biomimicry and not bio copy paste. Of course, you cannot say, oh, let's all go and live like wolves. But to be inspired by the juxtaposition of different ways of governing different types of entities, societies, companies, uh, would be very interesting to see mm -hmm. what what different types click together and what enter in conflict. I can't wait to read that next book. I have um, to write it but, first. Yeah, I have to write it first. <laughs> but let's, let's go back to the book that you did write because you take these uh, learnings from uh, the biological uh, realm and apply them to human communication. Um, so just tease that out a little bit. How does, how does what happens in the biological world uh, relate to humans communicating with each other? Well, uh, this was an exercise uh, that I did, uh, which was, you know, kind of ask around me and 
brainstorm about what are the most important challenges that human communication faces now. So uh, after a, a panel and, and brainstorming, I came up with eight or nine of these challenges for which I then looked to nature to find solutions. Mm -hmm. um, so you abstract your challenge, you go to biology, you re-abstract the solution, and then you end up with like a precept. That's mm -hmm. like, say, uh, for example, one precept would be, let's be cautiously curious. Mm -hmm. Let's always keep our eyes open uh, on about what's going on around us. Let's let in what is beneficial, what leave out what isn't. And this is also a way how a cell membrane functions. It leave, you know, it always senses its surrounding and it lets in what is important for the self to metabolize and leaves out what is dangerous to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I came up with 13 of these precepts and when I listed them without knowing, uh, I actually could link them all to cell communication, mm -hmm. which falls back to what we were saying before. Uh, cells in our organism or tissues are working like a, uh, li like a super organism. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we're not the individual, the cells can be the individuals. And if we apply this cellular communication rules, then we can also you know, be the tissue for our society. Yeah. So let's go to the, that issue of curiosity uh, then, that, that why is that beneficial for the cell to have that um, kind of exploratory aspect, that curious, curious aspect? Well, in, in order to know what's going on, I mean, in intelligence is survival <laughs> to a certain point. Uh, intelligence in the sense of gathering information. Uh, if you don't know what's going on around you, you don't know how to react to it. You cannot prepare, you cannot, you cannot evolve to survive, you cannot adapt, you cannot move if you have to move. I mean, we can see species now moving, migrating due to climate change. Uh, I live in the mountains. We have, we have animals and plants that we didn't have here 20 years ago that are starting to, to rise in altitude. So, mm. you know, trees migrate too very slowly, but they do. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're not attuned to your surroundings and you do not question if this is positive, negative, dangerous, uh, propitious, uh, or subject to, to collaboration, you, well, you're just waiting for something to happen to you and you're passive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a need to be active in searching for cues about evolution around you to be able to respond to that. And to kind of extrapolate that, if you had a cell that was kind of closing off those, those areas of sensing and curiosity with the environment, if you had a cell that was closing those off, uh, it's not going to be successful. It's likely not to survive. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, the parallel there now with uh, human communication is if human communication is, is, is open, curious, exploratory, freely flowing, um, you know, working the way, the way a healthy cell works in its environment, then that will contribute to a better flow of the information uh, and communication in the human environment. And if you have a situation where, the, where that curiosity is lower, 
the ability to inquire is less. You've sort of closed off those areas of communication. That's going to end up with that that human or that human community being being more vulnerable, more limited, more uh, fragile. In danger, in danger, yeah. because it, it yeah. cannot feed itself anymore, right? It, 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 it will not be able to choose what to do. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting. So censorship yeah. is dangerous in a certain way as well. You know, everything is linked again. It's not in the same chapter in my book, but if you s- try to shield off uh, a community and say these people cannot talk or cannot have access to information, well, then sclerosis happens mm-hmm. because this community yeah. cannot cannot survive. Uh, yeah. Look at North Korea. I mean, these people live under perfusion of of the outside world because they cannot adapt. They don't even mm-hmm. know what's outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now there are examples in biology when some, some retraction or protection is probably appropriate for survival, but as a, as a permanent mode or structure, it's going to be self, self-defeating. The cell will, you know, the cell may protect itself or the, the, the um, you know, the, a spore, a bacteria may, may create a spore stage where it's going to be stable, it's going to continue, but it, that only makes a difference if it ultimately reaches an environment where c- it can then open well, up if, again. If you have a spore that cannot sense that there is water for it to, you know, get out of its dormancy, then, then it's going to stay a spore forever. Yep. Yeah, that's a good example. So uh, what I like about this is now we've gone from sort of the cell uh, to the to the human issue of communication and and even then to the societal issue of uh, responsiveness and resilience and what it means to be uh, in something that has that curiosity and explorative capacity that we see in healthy cells. Now it becomes uh, a personal virtue, right? For for people to have that quality, it becomes a personal virtue, and then at a societal level, it becomes an ethical, uh, an ethical principle that we we would want to see and institutionalized, and um, uh, and then that means it's now a political issue, right? Of course, and and yeah. that's where you, you you know you you can come up with the whole story about open source about openness of information, transparency, critique of your sources, uh, cautiously curious, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't just gullibly just absorb everything, otherwise your, your cell is in danger as well. Uh, just, you know, check and see if that's really true, corroborate. Uh, many, many aspects of how we treat information and knowledge uh, are, are at stake here, yeah. Yeah, one of the one of the issues you pointed out in your book is one of those challenges is uh, the issue of credibility and trust. And um, talk about how a cell might, how, how that might f- uh, be looked at in terms of it, in terms of the cell that we were talking about earlier. Well, the cell. I'm not a big biology specialist on cells, but I, I can try. I hope I'll be corrected if, if I'm wrong. But a, a cell will not react to the first lock and key. Uh, the, the, the first key, biological key to open it, 
has to be exactly the right one, first of all. So you have to have you know, the code and the code, decode, encode, decode. That's one thing. And if it has adverse effects, it will then shut. That, that's the whole principle of the immune system that will purge uh, cheaters, liars, uh, pretenders mm -hmm. in the system that want to trick the cells to open up uh, to them uh, so they can be predated on. So, yeah, it's, it's about having these natural and proportional thought of responses adapted to the size of the inflammation. You don't need a cannon to like shoot down uh, an ant, uh, even though some people tend to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and, and that then you damage uh, many th cells around instead of, uh, of doing the surgical uh, cuts you need. Right, and I'm, I'm thinking now about uh, COVID and what we've learned about, a, a lot of us have learned about uh, biochemistry biochemistry and the the way viruses work in ways that we never have before and we've seen those images of the cell which is covered with these spikes and these spikes are certain types of as you say keys trying to unlock the cells and because this is something that the body has never seen before it doesn't have the defenses against this and so the cell, the virus is kind of sneaking in with those spikes and opening up cells in ways that are unhealthy to the cell. So, so we want a system that that uh, doesn't automatically trust right. what, what's coming in from a communication standpoint. Now, it doesn't automatically trust what's coming in. Wants to know that this is credible and safe. And if something comes along that is not credible and safe. It has to be purged somehow from the system, or, or at least kept outside. Yeah. yeah. So uh, talk about the modern world of communication and what's going on there, and you know, what's the, what's the draw some parallels to? Oh, the, the, there's lots of parallels all, <coughs> as you can find. I mean, you can you can find all types of propaganda. You can find all kinds of disinformation. You can find poisonous ideas for our society or for, for, for even the people who, who read it and accept it uh, um, that are really spread like viruses. And, and th that's the reverse uh, story of the hummingbird, mm. you know. Uh, lots of people think they're hummingbirds, but they're poisonous hummingbirds because they're spreading uh, one by one poison on or mm. they're, they're fueling the fire mm. with with petroleum or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, thinking they do the right thing. And who are we to know that we're on the right side of it? I mean, only time will tell if, if I'm sure I'm on the right side. Of course, you think mm -hmm. you're on the right side mm -hmm. because, you know, we, we all look at life on our perspective. Um, and my perspective is, okay, we would like the system to perpetuate itself and to better itself and to become more resilient, more resistant, uh, more robust, uh, more equal for all, uh, more diverse, uh, because this is our self-perpetuating uh, characteristics that we want in an ecosystem. Uh, some people will say, no, let's shut everything down. Let's, you know, survival of the fittest, which is never what Darwin said. Darwin said, mm -hmm. survival of the best adapted, not yes. the strongest. Mm -hmm. And that's 
always depends on the context. Right, so and that can be, in an ecology, it can be extended to say the survival of those that cooperate the best and, right. and fill the niches appropriately and collaborate across uh, across And perpetuate the, the ecosystem, not mm -hmm. their own species, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, again, getting back to this analogy where we have, uh, we have a new world of open communication, you know, social media, the internet, anything can get out there, anything can be put out there by anybody. Um, and we don't know the intention behind that, right? We don't know the intention, although a lot of it is driven by money, we know that, and some of it is driven by political power or political agendas. Intent, so the, in, yeah. the intention behind this, this um, information flow isn't always um, positive or beneficial or, or f for our own interests. So we have to try and filter that. And it sounds like we need some kind of an immune system built, I, I, like, I like the Biotia, immune system that can be built to help um, police that process. Disinformation, for example, right. ways, of, ways of curtailing disinformation or you know, putting labels on things and that sort of stuff. So, so that, that needs to be expanded um, oh, the, in, the open information age is so young. The people who use it have not been, you know, immunized yet. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We're still very naive. We're, we're like baby cells yeah. uh, in this ecosystem. And we, we don't understand the tools. We don't recognize them fast enough. Uh, we clickbait. I mean, we we yeah. have all our human biases that you know. Oh, I like this headline, so I'll just send it further, not even reading the the article or yeah. checking the source. Yeah. We all do that. I mean, even yeah. I do that, and I yeah. should not. I mean, if somebody should mm -hmm. not, I shouldn't. Yeah. So but the you know that this yeah. immune system will happen. It it will create. And just to tell you uh, to go back to diversity. Uh, you see this from a global northwestern point of view, w which is also where I sit. But if you travel to Africa or to Asia, very often your internet access is only on your phone, and it's very often only through Facebook. So you access the internet through Facebook or through WhatsApp or through whatever, and you don't even have the internet as the internet. Mm. So the internet is not searchable, it's just Facebook or social media that are searchable. Which mm -hmm. means you cannot even corroborate what you're getting on your phone, which is of course subject to censorship mm -hmm. from your government, mm -hmm. from Facebook, mm -hmm. from whoever you're following on Facebook. So you know this tunnel vision, uh, this um, segregation of contents, and siloing again through this idea of global community. But it, it's it's one of these mirrors that change shape when you look at it. Mm -hmm. y mm -hmm. You think you're in the global village, but actually mm -hmm. you're just in, in one silo. Mm -hmm. And it's even more concerning um, for the global south, where internet access is additionally filtered uh, before yeah. the access that we can have, for example. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we, you know, more information flow is better and less uh, overt control and censorship of that information is better because it will allow the individual actors to get access to uh, a broader array of information, not simply more sources. narrow, more sources. 
Um, but uh, as you point out in your book, you know, this, this, the biological examples we're using, the human cell and, and biological communities and ecology, I mean, that's 3.8 billion years of trial and error to get this right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we need, I mean, this is maybe a challenge to complexity science is to say, okay, so what methods and processes the biological system has developed to handle these kinds of issues, um, communication, trustworthiness, you know, how a cell responds to the input from the outside world. You know, we need to figure out how to extrapolate some of those techniques into the world of how we're processing information and how the, how the web is working or how social media is working. And we need to try and do that uh, on a pretty accelerated timetable because it's moving well, pretty fast. As long as the purpose of the big media platforms on internet are to keep your attention span to sell you something, as long as it's driven by money, it's going to be very difficult to, for this immune system to create itself. Mm. Because mm -hmm. it, it's basically disrupting this attention span duration, this available brain time uh, or purchasing time uh, that, that, that the social medias are craving. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit worried for the next times, but you know, in the end, the system mm -hmm. will purge itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it looks a little bit alarming now. Uh, in the end, you know, we're trying to, to get our species to survive and our communities to survive. The planet's going to be fine. The internet's going to be fine. The ecosystem outside might change, but it will survive us. Uh, it, it, it's about our personal hygiene, our personal survival, that mm -hmm. we really have to go and, you know, do whatever we can to to at least open the discussion about it. I don't have the money to change Facebook. Mm -hmm. I can maybe have a couple ideas, and I'd love to be on their ethics board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a multifaceted, complex system that's gonna require multifaceted change. And one of, the, one of the things is we have this opportunity, you and I, to have a conversation about it, you know, to get it out there others may hear it, others may, may follow it. There are other people doing the same kind of thing. So we have a hope that there's a, there is a, a quiet, not very visible process, complex process at work among the billions of human beings on the face of the earth <clears throat> that will hopefully evolve a higher intelligence in terms of how to respond to this overload of information. Anyway, we can hope for that. Um, hope dies last. Uh, <laughs> I want, to, I want to change the conversation around a little bit and um, ask you something a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of more personal. It may seem uh, off the boat, but part of, part of what we're trying to do is how do complexity practitioners make sense of the world? And so part of this conversation is to ask you, do you have a religious background, something that uh, that some years ago was the basis for how you make made sense of things and um, and how has that evolved uh, as you've learned more about the complexity of the world well I, I, I was raised a Christian uh, in a very the distant Europe with religion uh, we're, we're kind of 
look at religion as a guide and not as a rule. So yeah, religion has been around me, but I never really found my thing with an organized religion, with a top-down approach. I thought that was kind of odd. When I was little, I wanted to become popus, which my mother told me was not possible. That's where I became a feminist. I decided that's really absolutely unjust for me not to be able to become a popes because I think I do a great job mm. uh, just because I'm not a man. So uh, that's where I became a feminist. Uh, so religion, organized religion has never really worked for me um, because I've always had this link to nature and this very direct link to a personal responsibility which is also something that is very Western. Uh, you know, do good to your direct environment and do good to your family, do good to your community. And um, we didn't really filter that through religion. But the more I learned about nature, the more I realized uh, this dichotomy we had with, you know, human race, uh, human species, uh, using nature for their own gain mm. and mastering it the way it's, it, it, it's described in the Bible, I always felt that was very odd because, mm. hey, wh why, why is there a right for me to kill this spider because it's in my house? It was here before. Mm -hmm. You know, and as, as kids you ask these questions and then you usually fall in line and you're like, okay, this should not be here. So. You know, this is my territory. So yeah. now I carry them out. It's like yeah. I'm sorry, okay. you're just you're just in the wrong place. You know, <coughs> uh, mm. why kill it? You know, <laughs> which is very okay. tree yeah. hugger type of yeah. well, biological fun <laughs> approach. That's, I think that's great. You're you're morally more advanced than I am because I will kill spiders. But I do have one uh, story that you might be interested in, and that is um, the word dominion which is the one you've said is in the Bible that becomes a very uh, powerful word. Um, the original Hebrew word, as I understand it, is uh, radah. And that Hebrew word was translated to a dominion in the, King mm -hmm. James, in the King James Version of the Bible in English. The word radah means in ancient Hebrew, as I understand it, I've been told, it means something quite different. It's much more like the the responsibility that a shepherd has over his like a flock. stewardship. Stewardship and engagement, you know, involvement, uh, you know, uh, or love that, that, that a shepherd has for his flock, that caring uh, qual stewardship quality to it. Somehow that concept got completely lost in the King James translation and you can kind of you know, there's a long cultural tradition of thousands words of years do matter. how we did that. George, words do matter. Words do matter. Yeah. <laughs> so if if we could regain that concept of Radha, um, maybe there's maybe there's uh, you know, and, and re recast the way that story in Genesis folds unfolds, it would be a very different experience for people. Yeah, the, the uh, same way, you know, that the book of uh, I read the Bible in French, but I mean, like, le, 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 le fruit de la connaissance, you know, that, that's the original sin is knowledge. And just get rid of it, you know. <laughs> the, yeah. That word, knowledge is sin, it, it's just impossible. Yeah. 
And again, I think if you look, if, if, you, if you go back to the ancient way of seeing things, it's you know, like the story of Babel is, a, is, a, is an example of when the knowledge or the money or, you know, when that, when, that, when that becomes idolized and becomes the basis by which you structure your life, you know, you're building an edifice. Well, there's an analogy with, with the Babel. You know, they, they, they built the tower so high and God was angry and smote. And that was the end of that tower. Well, look at what we're doing now with the, the internet and the information age. And now everybody's in these self-reinforcing bubbles and silos. And pretty soon, we're not going to be able to talk to each other. Right, even though yeah. we're in every language. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so there's, there's some messages from some of those. Anyway, I didn't want to digress, but um, <laughs> I, 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 it's clear that some of what you've been learning about in... Uh, in the biomimicry exploration is reshaping how you think this makes sense. So um, do you want to follow up that thought in terms of making sense of... of I, I, li I like your idea of radar, if this is like <clears throat> stewardship or community or, or interaction. I think that is, that is also, again, the hummingbird. It's a wonderful because we're going to close with the same thing we opened with. Mm -hmm. which I like as a storyteller. Uh, mm -hmm. The animals or the species are kind of stewards of their own little piece of land or soil. But they're, they're stewards together. They cannot be stewards each on their own because it's the system that functions. Their own species is so vulnerable if you take the system away. Uh, the the, the, the long-term cycles you know, nutrient cycles, energy cycles, water cycles of our planet, and this constant slight instability uh, that keeps our system together, that keeps evolution going, that keeps adaptation going, and climate change, natural climate change, uh, the, the continents, and, and, and so on and so forth. These very slow evolutions need to be here for ecosystems to thrive and to evolve. Otherwise, we'd be still in the primal soup, right? Mm -hmm. If there was no outside stimulus for us. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. each has to be the steward of themselves, of their community, of their society, of their link to nature, of themselves inside as well. But we can only be stewards of the world we're part of together. Mm -hmm. So we're, we are individuals, but we are interconnected and co-dependent if you want to use and that co-responsible co-responsible um, and those links of connections extend to not just ourselves our family our community uh, but it's linked to the natural world and the natural world is linked globally the human world is linked globally so we are linked together in a global sense, and and that is you. I don't want to paraphrase. Oh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's how you are making sense of this process. That we all have that joint responsibility. We're all interconnected. We're all part of this this great greater whole. From from the nano to the ma macro to the 
extremely big, you know, all mm -hmm. these concentric and nested components. We, we are one tissue of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That sounds very much like a creation story. It is a great yeah. cosmogony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe we need more of those narratives to kind of get Absolutely. people... Absolutely, to make sense people, of things. Yeah, to make, to make sense of things. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we're at, at the end here. I have one question I want to close on, and that is um, if, if you could share, if you have any, an, an experience that you feel was really important in your life, doesn't really, don't necessarily have a way of explaining it, or it's, maybe it's a little mystical or some, something that you'd call sort of transcendent. Um, One experience that always amazes me to, 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 to the highest extent, and I had that since I was like maybe four years old, is we used to go and catch tadpoles. And that transformation of tadpoles into frogs and the frogs come back to lay eggs in the same place and you start the cycle again and the thing first lives in water and then it lives in, in air and then it, it's got all these crazy adaptations uh, it, it's carnivorous and then it's not and it's it's just it's the most crazy animal to study is, is all these frogs and and the fact that they're great biomarkers that they live in different you know environments in different states of matter and uh, they're very good vigils to tell us when an ecosystem is failing they're the first ones to go because they're very sensitive and I think, uh, yeah, just that transformation, mm. you know, and, and we even have different names for the same animal, mm -hmm. uh, the egg, the tadpole, the frog, even if it's the same individual. So yeah. I think I think that's that's kind of mystical. It's like, you know, yeah. your baby, your child, your an adolescent, your an adult, and then you pass on your genes and the cycle starts again. I think that's a very mystical thing to to, to, I mean, look at time lapses. Don't go and catch tadpoles. They need to be in the wild, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yes, that sense of wonder and awe is part yeah. of what you, f you feel as, a, as an inspiration Absolutely. for what you do. Great. That's wonderful. Michaela, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you very much. And Thanks uh, for having me, George. Yeah. Well, let's, we're making sense of complexity. We're trying. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Making Sense of Complexity. Next episode, I will be joined by Michael Garfield, the host of the Santa Fe Institute's Complexity Podcast, some 84 episodes featuring conversations with some of the world's smartest and most interesting complexity scientists. Michael is also an artist, musician, writer, editor, organizer, and cultural change agent. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Weekend, Plank Sip, and Talk of Today and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.